ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sarah Wildman. I'm FP's new print editor, and this is actually my first appearance on the ER. Today we're tackling a topic of international importance to listeners the world over. I'm talking about the Olympics, of course, which I personally love. On February 9th, the 23rd Olympic Games kick off in South Korea. But the intrigue around the 2018 Games began months ago. Back in December, the Russian Federation was banned from the Games after a 16-month investigation into illegal doping, though some of their athletes will still compete. And we'll even see a few athletes from North Korea. Joining me in Foreign Policy's Washington, D.C. studio is Emily Tamkin, FP's reporter on all things embassy in Eastern Europe. And we have three experts joining our conversation today, each tackling a different piece of the Olympic puzzle, the historic, the contemporary, and, of course, the athletics themselves. As we dig in, we'll be wondering, what do the games mean for North Korea? What can we learn from the past, including the 1936 games hosted by Nazi Germany? Does the idea of an Olympic truce exist? And how do Olympic sports rise and fall in popularity? We'll start out actually with the past. With me on the phone from Chicago is Northwestern University professor and guest exhibition curator at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, Daniel Green. And from California, David Clay Large, a senior fellow with the Institute of European Studies at University of California, Berkeley. David Clay Large just actually contributed a piece to us called The Olympics Will Only Make the North Korea Crisis Worse. And we'll start with you. David, you argue that the origins of the games were meant to be international comedy, but in fact, they're often as much a source of enmity. And you talk about how North Korea sending its athletes and picking up direct talks with South Korea shouldn't necessarily be a cause for cheer. You write, quote, The current promises of improved international relations and durable inter-Korean reconciliation could well turn out to be hollow because participating nations have always seen the Olympiads as perfect opportunities to strut their sovereignty on a grand global stage. Can you talk a little bit about how nationalism has disguised itself in the context of this international event and explain the Olympic truce? Yes, the fact is that Nationalism has been an integral part of the games right from the beginning because of the way they were designed. Uh, ironically, the, the founder of, of the games, Pierre Coubertin, did want the games to be internationalist and to uh, promote uh, peace and goodwill around the world, but he also mandated that the various participants would have to do so as part of national teams. Right, And so by doing that, he uh, immediately undercut the ideal 
of uh, universalism and internationalism because, again, all the athletes came as teams, and then they started following a kind of ceremonial protocol which accentuated the nationalism. As you know, in the opening ceremony, the athletes march in not independently but as part of teams, right, and they carry their national colors. And then in the award ceremonies, you have the national anthems played and the, and the banner of the athletes who won, the national banners going up. All through the ceremony and organization of the games, you have this nationalism. And you could see national enmity rather than national comity or harmony coming out right at the beginning. The, the Turks uh, were at the throats of the Greeks, of course, back in the late 19th century for the first games, so the Turks didn't even come. Uh, they weren't invited. There was a, a lot of hostility between the French and the Germans early on. Uh, the teams almost came to blows. Uh, the, the French didn't even want the Germans to show up at the Paris Games of, of 1900. And, and when the German uh, team did come, uh, they, they, they found all kinds of insults and impediments to their training. Famously, in, in the 1908 London Games, there was bitter enmity between the U.S. And, and Great Britain, both of whom were at that point, uh, uh, trying to assert uh, a sort of global control, global uh, prominence, both in athletics and in, in politics and military affairs. And so uh, the, the athletes fell out famously over a tug-of-war contest, which the, uh, the British won, but the Americans insisted they won only by fouling and acting uh, in an unsportsmanlike way. This, this kind of thing persists all the way through. We've had boycotts, of course, periodically in the games, famously, in 1980, when the Soviet Union hosted the games in Moscow, most of the Western countries didn't come, including the U.S., and then uh, tit for tat, Los Angeles hosted the games in 84, the, the Eastern Bloc nations didn't come. Let me pause you there for a moment before we jump to 1980. I want to touch on the idea of boycott in a moment, but I wanted you to pick up in 1972 with the Munich Olympics and how that actually was seen in a strange way. It's almost a parallel to the Koreas. I wonder if you can address that. And obviously, it, it turns to horrific violence. Yes, 72, Munich 72 is the best analogy to the current situation because there you had, you know, deeply divided Germany as you have a deeply divided Korea today. Western Germans under Chancellor Willy Brandt in, in 1972 really hoped that, uh, that the Olympic Games would ease tensions between the two Germanys, between East Germany and West Germany would lead to some sort of reconciliation, better relations between the two. And this was a fond hope of, of Brandt and indeed of the Munich organizers. They did everything they could to make their games different from the famous 36 games under, under Hitler. There was a de-emphasis on nationalism, or at least an attempt at de-emphasizing nationalism in 72. And the Easterners were uh, welcomed to the West, and uh, everything was done to make them uh, feel at home. But the fact is that the East Germans did not want to see these games as a kind of celebration of, of, of reconciliation or better relations or harmony and brotherhood between the two Germanys. They wanted to emphasize their separateness from the West. And so the, the athletes were given strict instructions not to fraternize with their Western counterparts. The fans were pretty much under instruction to cheer only for the East German athletes and, and not for the Western ones. And indeed, there was very little fraternization or coming together between the two Germanys at this contest. So that, that's one aspect of it. Of course, what we remember most about those 72 games was something more horrific, and that is the attack by the Palestinian commando group, the Black September, against the Israeli uh, delegation, which ultimately resulted in, in 11 Israeli deaths. 
this was a, a terrible uh, terrorist attack and had completely blighted those uh, 72 uh, games. So rather than promoting reconciliation and harmony and goodwill, they added to the spiral of, of, of violence, attack and counterattack that has characterized the Middle East, you know, ever since. I wonder if there's something here, though, and I'll allow you both now to turn even further back to the past, which is that the Olympics... Whether or not it represents comedy does get one thing, which is the eyes of the world for the most part. And so obviously, if there is a group that is trying to gain attention or make a statement, and this was true 30 years ago in Korea as well, when there was an airplane bombing just before the last time South Korea hosted the Olympics. But let's look further back. And actually, I'll start with Daniel Green. The 36 Olympics in Berlin with Hitler at the helm, let's talk a little bit about what the reactions were internationally to an administration, a regime that was ruling already based on an idea of sort of noxious racial superiority, hosting these games, and what were the responses in the U.S. and globally to the idea of performing on a stage hosted by this country? Sure. And I think it's important when you're talking about the 1936 games to go back to the start and know that the games were not awarded to the Nazi regime and to Nazi Germany. They were awarded in 1931 to Germany before Hitler took power. But Hitler comes soon to realize, I think with the help of Joseph Goebbels, the Nazi minister of of propaganda, that the games can be an opportunity for Germany to present itself as a new strong and and united country. And also, it's an opportunity to mask the growing militarism in Germany, which they do successfully for two weeks in in August of 1936, while the eyes of the world, as you say, are on Germany. Early on, the the Nazis institute an Aryan-only policy in German sport. So Jews and, and others are systematically excluded from fair participation in German sport. And this is not a secret to to the world. Many of the Nazi measures, most of the Nazi measures in the 1930s taken against Jews are not secret to the world. So the United States and, and other countries, Great Britain, France, there's discussions in Sweden and Czechoslovakia, in the Netherlands, about whether or not to, to boycott the games. And the discussions heat up in the United States in the fall of 1935 in the aftermath of the Nuremberg Laws in September of 1935, where the Nazis have stripped Jews of their citizenship. And the debate it really boils down to a question of whether Jewish athletes have equal opportunity in Germany. And Avery Brundage, who is a representative of the American Olympic Committee, who is soon going to be nominated to the International Olympic Committee, visits Germany in 1934 to do a so-called inspection. And the visit is brief, and it's very tightly managed by the Nazis. But Brundage comes away finding exactly what he wants to find, which is that the discrimination is not is, is not something that should lead to a boycott. Brundage really shows his his true colors in 1935. Also, when the when the boycott movement heats up, he alleges that it's a Jewish communist conspiracy behind this boycott. On the other side, as the Amateur Athletic Union, led by Jeremiah Mahoney, Mahoney and others want to boycott the games to make a statement against Nazi policies and to uphold the idea of the Olympic Games as pure sport with equal opportunity for all athletes. Perhaps we can talk more about how African-American athletes in the United States at the time and, and, and some Jewish athletes get, get caught up in the middle of, of this debate. 
Yeah, I'm curious about that. And I don't know if, David, you'd like to jump in because I know David also wrote a book on the 36 Olympics, if you you have thoughts in that space as well. Yeah, I I just might add to that. The Germans sought to ward off the the boycott threat by some token gestures. They added a half-Jewish fencer to their team for the uh, summer games in Berlin and and a, a Jewish hockey player for the winter games that they also hosted at Garmisch Partenkirchen. In, in February. So there, there were these token gestures, and uh, that proved enough uh, for those uh, in the West, especially in the United States, who really wanted to go to the games. I mean, Brundage was determined that the U.S. should be represented. And so, the, the, you know, the, the Germans helped a little bit by these token gestures. Uh, it's disgraceful, of course, that that proved to be enough uh, to lead Brundage and others to say that the Germans were in compliance with Olympic ideals of of, of equal uh, participation, you know, irrespective of, of, of race, ethnicity, and all the rest of it. So there were there was this tokenism and a lot of cosmetic efforts made by the Germans to tone down some of the racism. But in fact, you know, the the racism was really going on right through the '36 games. I mean, they they started a new concentration camp in Sachsenhausen on the eve of the games at another uh, camp for gypsies called Marzahn in the eastern part of Berlin uh, at the time of the games. And they rounded up these gypsies, get them off the streets, put them into the concentration camp, which was a way way station for further incarceration down the line. The Aryanization policies with respect to taking over land and businesses continued right through the games. So the efforts to to mask uh, the racist policy were really pretty feeble, actually. So, well, they were largely really cosmetic. cosmetic, no? They were they were scrubbing the streets of the propaganda, and I know that there had been Roma athletes who had been denied the right to participate. But let's, let's go back for a moment to Daniel Green and the questions of the athletes themselves. And one of the things that's really remarkable about the games is that it is perceived, probably rightly, as, as the pinnacle or one of the pinnacles of athletic performance even to this day, perhaps even more so. So the question to boycott is both an emotional one as well as a political one. And I know that there are are sort of robust debates in African-American newspapers and communities, and I assume within the Jewish community as well. I wonder if you can look at that a little bit and and where people came down on that and and also some decisions the U.S. Olympic team made around who to allow to perform. Sure. There are African-American athletes who participate in Los Angeles in 1932, but I think 1936 is really a turning point for African-American athletes. These are Jesse Owens' games. Um, There are 18 African-American athletes who go to Berlin, ultimately, in in August of 1936. But during the boycott debate, uh, African-American communities are not unified about whether or not Black athletes should should go to the games. Even the NAACP is is quietly uh, at times working behind the scenes, asking Jesse Owens and and Ralph Metcalf and others to boycott the games, with the logic being, look, this is this is Jim Crow America in the mid 1930s. Jim Crow America is designed to keep African Americans segregated and and powerless, and. Some in the black community are arguing if we want to stand up against racism at home, we have to make a principled stand against racism abroad by not going. Others are saying, look, this is a real opportunity to, quote, disprove 
Aryan theories of racial superiority by, by beating them at sport. Ultimately, the black athletes who go to the games have these triumphs, especially in track and field, which is really at the center of what the Olympics mean in, in 1936. They get to wear USA on their chest as they compete, but when they come home, most of them, including Owens, find that not much changes as a result of, of these athletic triumphs in, in Germany. And, and Daniel, you had the opportunity to interview a handful of these athletes at, towards the end of their lives. What did they describe it felt like to arrive there? I mean, what did it mean to enter into that stadium and see Hitler at the podium? What did it mean to compete on that team? Did it feel as though it was sort of an opening salvo in the First World War? Did it feel as though it was a political statement to be there on one side or another? Or is that not how they categorize it? I, I think it may have felt like all those things. I think we have to remember these athletes are young. They're they're very young men. For most of them, it was the first time that they had traveled outside of the United States. And a lot of them actually did talk to me about the Olympic ideal, the intended Olympic ideal of brotherhood among athletes from different countries. Uh, many of them... I think really came away remembering that, um, remembering their relationships with, with athletes from other countries, and of course remembering their, their triumphs on the world stage. One exception, I had the opportunity uh, a number of times to interview Marty Glickman, who was a Jewish-American sprinter, a, a kid who would go to Syracuse, very young runner at the time, and he was placed on the four by 100 meter relay team, uh, along with one other Jewish athlete, Sam Stoller. And in the, in the moments or in the days before that four by 100 race is supposed to take place, Marty Glickman and Sam Stoller are told they're going to be removed from the team and replaced with Jesse, replaced by Jesse Owens and, and Ralph Metcalf, two of the, two of the fastest sprinters on the, on the U.S. team. And this is an episode with a lot of controversy. Marty Glickman has, has, had told the story many times of what happened in that private meeting. According to him, the, the officials of the American Olympic Committee had been told that Germany had, quote, you know, secret weapons, runners who were, were faster than the, the U.S. team, and that we had to make sure that, that we were going to win this uh, relay by putting our fastest runners, and, and Owens and Metcalf were faster, by putting our fastest runners on this relay team. It, if you watch the footage of the, of the 4 by 100 meter relay, when the United States and the last runner is finishing, there's, there's no one else um, from any other country, even in the frame. The United States won this race by so much. So Marty Glickman did attribute his removal to anti-Semitism and to not wanting to further embarrass the Nazis by having Jewish-American athletes win. And according to him, Jesse Owens even stood up in the, in the meeting and said something to the effect of, I've won my medals, let Marty and Sam run. Of course, we don't know exactly what happened in, in, the, in that meeting, but, but Marty Glickman always told the story consistently that way. And there's no doubt that, that Avery Brundage's anti-Semitism was, I think, core to his being and influenced some of the ways that he made decisions about going to the games and then who would be allowed to compete at the games. David, let me come back to you, and I know we're running low on time, but I want to look at these questions of symbols and coming back to this question of enmity versus comedy and what you think might happen this year. Obviously, we're at a moment of great tension internationally in a very different context. 
Is this a moment where people sort of are able to set this aside, or will we see that tension? You know, I don't think it can be set aside. People will be thinking about it all the time in the background, even even as the two Korean teams march in uh, as one, which they, they intend to do. There will be talk about how this is not being replicated in, in North Korean policy. For example, right on the eve of the games, uh, Kim intends to put on a major military parade, a huge military parade to honor uh, his rearmament program and, and the rest of it. So on the one hand, you'll have these athletes marching together, and, but, but more importantly, the, the rearmament program will continue, and there will be this big military parade, and we already know now that some of the cultural events that were planned are being scrapped. Uh, that it was supposed to be a pre-Olympics uh, art festival and, and music festival up in the north, uh, and that has now been uh, scrapped. There will still be some northern artists going down to the south, but I think even as they work together, a lot of people will be saying, yes, but what does this mean? How deep does this go? Is this going to translate into something broader? And I think the answer is no. I don't, I don't see that happening. I don't see Kim changing his policy in any dramatic way because these two teams marched together in the opening ceremony. I don't see that at, at all. Now, maybe I'll be wrong. Let's hope, let's hope that it, for once the Olympics do bring comedy rather than enmity, but I, I, I personally don't see it happening. I want to thank David Clay Large and Daniel Green for joining us on the ER today. I'm looking forward to the Olympics, personally. <laughs> well, we all are, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, yeah. Sarah. As much as I enjoy digging into historic Olympic coverage, I'm also obsessed with the present. So check back later for part two of our Olympics podcast coverage when we have on two-time Olympian Sasha Cohen, who won silver for U.S. women's figure skating in 2006 in Torino, Italy. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I've been your host. The podcast is produced by Shelby Bostead. For more information about foreign policy and to subscribe to The ER, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Panoply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill, or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with the single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com <laughs>